Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. G-A-L-D-E-M-G. A-L-D-E-M. <laughs> this song is good. Welcome to Growing Up With Galdem, a Galdem original podcast. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour. My name is Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galdem. And my name's Natty Kasimbala. I'm a former editor and long-time contributor at Galdem. You can find Growing Up With Galdem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we're joined by the fabulous Mireille Harper. She is an award-winning editor, writer, sensitivity reader and communications consultant and she writes about arts and culture as well as on societal and topical issues. Mireille is an editor at Square Peg Vintage which is part of Penguin Random House UK and her essay Why Passivity Will No Longer Do is published in Feminist Book Society's anthology This Is How We Come Back Stronger and other stories. Her infographic 10 Steps to Non-Optical Allyship went viral in summer and sparked a conversation about the ways in which we can do anti-racism work effectively. Mireille, I'm literally so excited to have you on the show today and I just wanted to jump straight in off the bat to see if you could summarise for everyone listening what a sensitivity reader is and how someone might fall into that profession. 
Oh, wow. Nobody ever starts with that. So I'm really excited that you start with that. But a sensitivity reader, I guess, officially, is somebody who reads written material. So whether it's scripts, manuscripts, like fully written books, any kind of written material, and basically pulls out anything that could be construed sensitively. So mainly things that are offensive, things that could be contentious. Yeah, that's the kind of official terminology for it. And then the kind of unofficial is just basically reading stuff to make sure it's not like racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. So I kind of came into sensitivity reading like by mistake. I was working with DNI companies for a long time and I was on like an email chain called The Guest List, which is run by Shani Mears, who's amazing. And this email just came around basically saying, does anyone have experience in DNI and in publishing? And I did. And I ended up talking to DK Storling Kindersley, their children's publisher, and they were working on like inclusivity guidelines. And so I just kind of sensitivity read them to make sure that what they were saying was like right in terms of the language they were using. And from there, I've kind of just built <laughs> a career in sensitivity reading, working on all sorts of material from like, I guess, like kind of children's nonfiction to like really old classics. So I guess the most contentious work I've worked on was Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die, which is like, <laughs> it's like one of the worst works, I think, to sensitivity read. So yeah, it's an interesting career path. And I think anyone really can get into it if you have experience of editing or of reading written material in any way. So if you work in journalism, if you study English, etc. As we kind of move forward, sensitivity reading is becoming, I guess, more specialised. So I choose to only read narratives that are about mixed race people of Caribbean heritage or general narratives about Black British life, um, Caribbean life, etc. But I don't read like personal narratives from, say, the perspective of like Black British men or Black British women because I don't have that lived experience. So we're kind of moving into a time now where I think, yeah, publishers are like, we really need to hone in on like those specific lived experiences. So I don't know. I think it's like a option for a lot of people. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I was aware of sensitivity readers but I didn't know that that's the way in which the industry was moving in terms of specificity so that's really exciting to hear because obviously one person cannot contain within them like a million different identities so how does it feel though to almost be the final frontier in making sure something isn't offensive or you know isn't going to hurt a group of people because I can imagine it's a huge responsibility yeah to an extent with everything I take on I kind of assess if I'm the right person to read that material and yeah, kind of my point about trying to make sure I'm as close in lived experience or cultural understanding and knowledge of the topic I broach. A big thing with sensitivity reading as well is that even though I am in a way a final frontier, like nobody's obliged to take all my comments. So I can pull out loads of stuff and they can choose to say like, no, it's, it, at the end, it's ultimately down to the author and the publishing house. So there have been things I've pulled out that haven't been taken in. So in a sense, I offer my expertise, but I'm not responsible, which is a great position to be in because it's essentially saying like, here are all the things that people could pull up. And yeah, ultimately it's down to that person, whether they want to, yeah, alter that material. But uh, yeah, fortunately, nothing's been like really bad <laughs> so far for me. So I'm like, I must be doing an okay job, but that's fine. Yeah, I wondered if you'd ever had pushback. Is there ever kind of a dialogue or like push and pull when you're like, oh, this is actually kind of effed. And then they're like, actually, I disagree. Yeah. Like, does that ever happen? To be honest, with the nonfiction and fiction books I've worked on, no one's ever really come back and been like, wow, you're completely wrong. I think the only one I've had a bit of pushback on was Ian Fleming. And that was because I was essentially hired by the estate to read that book. So it was very contentious in that a lot of the things I was pulling out 
were kind of integral to the plot and also by me pulling them out would effectively be censoring how racist and sexist and misogynistic Ian Fleming was. So if they were to pull all of that out and then kind of republish Live and Let Dies, this really like improved version, it would make Ian Fleming look really good. So they were like, we actually need to keep some of that in there so people are aware of what his attitudes were. So I think that's the only time I've had pushback, but it's kind of worked out in their favour because they're not expecting me to rewrite history in a way. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that. Thank you for telling us more about that process and giving our listeners a bit of an insight too. I obviously just wanted to ask you a bit about timelines of black history, because I know that you've been working on this project for a wee while and that you've been a book lover since you were really young. So what does it mean to be sort of speaking to the younger generation of black and mixed race black kids through a project like this? Oh, it's everything. I was like that kid that was to say obsessed with books is like an understatement. Like I, all I did was read, like as soon as I could, that's all I did. My mum was like, you were the best kid because like you just didn't want to do anything apart from read. And I've worked with Dorling Kindersley for some time and I was like really apprehensive about working with a lot of publishers because I feel like a lot of them can capitalise on movements and things like that. And so to work with like a publisher who I feel like were very kind of integrity driven and authenticity driven was like a really wonderful experience for me. And it was, it was also just like a massive learning experience for me. So I was like, wow, I get to put this work out there and loads of kids who look like me will be able to like consume it. But also like I'm learning about my own history at the age of 25, like it's an incredible experience. So yeah, I mean, it's just a massive honour, I would say, to be able to like cover our history and our leaders and our legacies and our legends And yeah, just to know that like loads of kids around the world get to learn about their history in a kind of (laughs) non-European way, which is really nice as well. So it's been like genuinely a blessing for me and it's something that I definitely want to continue like as a path. I actually, obviously I discovered you on book Twitter because you're vocal, visible, doing all sorts of bits on there. I had actually never put together that you were also behind the infamous obstacle allyship Instagram post and I I guess just hearing you talk about like these different aspects really it's kind of all the same skill set of just being able to critically analyze like things that are wrong and actually communicate them in like a really accessible way I just wanted to ask a bit about any further plans to kind of use those skills to attack any other failing areas of the curriculums any failing areas of the arts like what's the plan after this that's a good question I think Where I guess I choose to align most of that critical analysis, I would say, is probably just in the space I'm in. So publishing, something I say about publishing a lot is just that the whole industry is built on who could share knowledge, who could dictate what people should know about. And so I'm very aware of the kind of like imperialist history behind that. And so that's where I want to very much apply that critique, that kind of dialogue. So that's essentially, I guess, where I've placed myself, although I am aware that like a lot of people think because I shared that, that I should be the spokesperson on every single issue ever. And that's what I'm very much trying to like detach myself from, just because I think we're kind of living in an era of clout in which everyone thinks that they should be the spokesperson for every subject. And it just means that we end up in this like really foggy discourse in which like everyone is kind of polarised. There's no actual like grey area of dialogue and like the whole point of dialogue is that it's supposed to exist in the grey area it's supposed to have differing opinions so it's a hard one because I think I've stepped away a lot and I think after the magnitude of the reception I got I was aware from a risk assessment perspective that I didn't want to be publicly in any space 
vocalizing my opinions on every issue, but also that I didn't want to become like commercially known as a face for like race issues and especially like just like being the face of talking about blackness when I'm a mixed race woman. So like I've stepped back and I think where I'll continue to have a lot of the discourse I'm having will be in the industry I'm in because it's hella old school. Even the whole kind of mechanism is an exploitative mechanism. And that's where I want to really unpick that and yeah, change it, I guess. I then went back through your Instagram and I was, when that all happened, like you did such a good job of articulating that in a way that I think is so counter modern culture right now, which is kind of like get big off of one topic and then kind of pull that and explore that as far as you possibly can. You know, people have to pay rent. Some people, maybe that's the way they want to pay their rent and how they make money. So I really thought it was just such an inspirational, like philosophically sound way of living your philosophy. And then I also, talking about publishing, I think there was a quote that we pulled out, which I think was really great, which was that the reason why the publishing industry is so elitist and sometimes a hostile place to be is because it's built upon the idea that English literature is excellent. And I think that kind of taps into what you were just saying now in terms of like who gets pushed and who's allowed to be great and who's canonical and all of that stuff as well. It's interesting you actually say that because I like recently saw that Florence Gibbons' Women Don't Know You Pretty is becoming a classic. And it was really funny because in the whole discourse, there was this argument about like who owns what, who's copied what. And I think that was great, but something didn't sit right with me. And then when I saw that like Florence Gibbons' book is now becoming a classic, I was like, aha, this is the issue. What do you mean by a classic just for our readers? Okay, so essentially the way publishing works is you've got something called Frontlist. So Frontlist are books that just are out now. And then you have backlist, which are like books that are older. And the way most publishing houses work is that they will try and have like a book that has done really commercially well, but has received a lot of critical acclaim, they will try and push. So maybe they'll create a re-edition or whatever. But what they'll also try and do is they'll try and basically repackage it as like a modern classic. So the idea is that it has set the zeitgeist, it's become the literary canon, it's a work that has inspired a movement, inspired lots of writers. So essentially you're getting the prestige and aside from that the idea is that your book will be reprinted for years and years and years to come and it will be reiterated to retailers that this is a classic this is a book that should never go out of stock whereas most books will kind of go out of print like within I don't know five years I would say like most books like if they came out five years ago you're not going to really be seeing them in shops so the fact that Florence's book is now seen as a legacy work and she is seen as the face of feminism in our era means that, say, our children or our children's children will look back and say, oh, well, Florence Given was the 21st century's Gloria Steinem or etc. So that to me was really interesting. And that was where I was like, oh, this is where we need to start having the conversations. Because if you even read the back page of her book, she says the line, like every single person is named, all black women. And she said, I would not have written these works without these black women. So it's like, well, why is she now the canon and being repackaged as a classic? Yeah, are any of them the classics? That's really interesting and especially surprising to me, even though I probably shouldn't be surprised at this point, that, that this has happened despite the level of backlash that the book got. Because I know that there was obviously the, the whole reason why the narrative between her and Chidi began was because, in part certainly because uh, Florence's publishers had gotten so behind the book and they were putting all this money, marketing money in, da 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 da. But I'm just shocked that they've continued with it because there was a lot of people in Chidi's corner as well who were very upset with Florence and, you know, she had to release all those statements and things. So, 
interesting. That's the disconnect between discourse and action right there, like literally playing out. Yeah. Because for every person who could even pretend that they're on her side, I mean, this is clearly a blurred sphere. Whether there are two sides or not, there's something very complex and intricate happening there. And for them to be like, don't really care. Uh, I'm going to give this guy a Penguin Classic or whatever. That's quite intense and intentional. Yeah, I feel like regardless of what you took from their back and forth between them, the thing that I certainly learned was that, as you said, that Florence's work was not original and the ideas weren't original. And so for it to be then packaged as something new and canonised, as you put it, like, it's bonkers. Sorry. Anyway. (laughs) I think so many things in publishing, I'm like, brilliant, brilliant. And then when I sometimes see certain things, I'm like, oh, you guys are really, this is a problem. (laughs) This is a natural problem. But yeah, let's move on to your extracts. So you've provided us with two lovely extracts and I would love for you to read them out if you're okay with that. And also just give us a little bit of backstory. Set the scene for us. Yeah, so because I've actually listened to older podcasts, I was like, oh my God, everyone has like diary entries and everyone has written like such eloquent, articulate diary entries. I was like, who wrote like this at 13? Like I was writing like Josh laugh like I didn't I did not I did not write in words I wrote in like numbers so yeah I was just first of all impressed by that so I've never had a diary I've never written anything down I have like no memory I have like nothing so I basically had to like just scour what I could and I found I guess a response to a question that my school had asked me to do for an alumni page and then I kind of transposed that with what I was talking to my best friend about at the same time so A bit of a backstory. I studied languages at university and as a result, I went on a year abroad. I lived in France, Italy and then Spain. And I always talk about this year because I feel like it was one of the, I guess, most impactful years of my life. I basically had like a mental breakdown. And I think the way I, I guess, kind of, I don't know the word for it, the way I kind of, I guess, showed myself externally was like a very kind of positive, I'm having the best time of my life side. But then at the same time, I was like, basically falling apart so I don't know I kind of just wanted to revisit that in terms of I guess how we externally portray ourselves and I guess with lockdown bringing a lot of these kind of emotions to the surface like I don't know how we kind of unpick that and how we kind of create like a healthy discourse about what we're feeling so I'll kind of go into it the profile I gave to my school was in answer to the question what has been your greatest achievement in life and how did your experiences help you to achieve other successes And so I said, in terms of courage, I would say moving abroad to three countries in a year was a massive achievement for me. I had to adapt to university life and the culture, as well as finding my own place to live. But I was lucky to have my friends with me, so it wasn't so daunting. And then at the same time, this was a message I had sent to my best friend on Facebook. So it was, I'm requesting to see psych people at university tomorrow. Thing is, some days I'm so okay, and then I feel like a fraud when I get into weird moods. I'm constantly questioning myself. I'm entirely torn right now and I feel like my heart and head are very confused and split across two different places. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and we'll get into all of the stuff that you touched on there as well and yeah I guess just like the contrast between those two things is something I think will resonate with a lot of people in terms of the way that we present ourselves when we can't quite understand or accept or just share how we're feeling so I guess I just wanted to ask first of all like how does it feel to look back at that time and reflect on what you were going through now I think I'm probably in a good place in that I can look at that and understand why I didn't portray that side of myself I think I've always kind of taken on the personality of being like the happy friend the happy person the like great outlook on life and I think I've had a lot of time to unpick why I choose to portray that side of myself 
And I think when I went into lockdown as well, I had a spell where I did kind of all these emotions came to the surface and I kind of just wrote it all down about that year. And it, it was a really cathartic experience for me in terms of, yeah, unpicking all the different kind of experiences I had on my year abroad that had been like traumas upon traumas that had kind of caused me to reach, I guess, like a break point. And yeah, like, I don't know, looking back now, I feel like I'm a lot of a stronger person, not in terms of like resilience, but in terms of like being stronger in my softness. Like I allow myself to feel emotional. I allow myself to know when I'm not okay. I allow myself like really difficult days and I'm just very open about them. I think I was saying to somebody at work as well, like, on days where it's too much, I'll just sit in a meeting and I'll be like, I'm really not having a good day today. I need to go. And I'm not worried about it. I'm not anxious about what the reception might be. So I don't know. I think I've had a lot of time to like consider those feelings and to not always seek to be like the hard person and the person who just gets on with it. So I don't know if that kind of answers, I guess. Absolutely. I really loved what you said about stronger and your softness. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. And I think that I had one of those days yesterday, in fact, where I was just like, you know what, I can't do this today. And it's funny how they can just still, even when you feel like you're all right, they can come out of nowhere sometimes, can't they? But what I wanted to um, speak more about was just this this process of not having to pretend anymore. And I thought it was really interesting that you said that actually writing became part of that as someone who didn't grow up writing diaries and didn't grow up using that as a means to express yourself. Why do you think that you kind of turned to that in that moment at the beginning of lockdown? I think probably just being with myself so I mean when I went into lockdown I was living with my sister and my best friend so I did have I guess a support circle around me in a sense but before lockdown I think I led a kind of like insanely busy life I would go to work and I would make sure that I had a friend to visit every single day after work I wouldn't get home until about 11 p.m every night and I would just conk out like there was kind of no gap between there was just no relaxation period it was just like on 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 crash up again, on and on. And even at the beginning of lockdown, I tried to kind of maintain that with like video calls and quizzes and keeping myself busy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. 
Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. And then I think it just came to a point where I just had stillness and that really was hard for me. And I think then that's when all those emotions arose, when I didn't have so many distractions, I guess. And I had that clarity to really sit with my emotions. And so I think it was probably just having that clarity that allowed me the space to write and the space to understand and unpick those emotions, which is something, I guess, even in like my childhood, I, I wasn't necessarily like a massively busy child, but I always made sure I had distractions and always had things going on. So I think it was just the fact that I was, yeah, locked in a house, couldn't really go anywhere it was just me. <laughs> like, all of us kind of had our own separate working lives in the flat we were in. So, yeah, I think it was that that really opened up the floor for me to look at those emotions and then find a way of articulating them, like, in written form, I guess. I guess moving on to, like, the message that you sent, which can also often feel like the hardest part in terms of seeking help and admitting that, you know, you're not feeling 100%. I hope you don't mind me asking, but, like, could you talk us through a little bit about what happened after that? Like, were you able to find... A support system? Were you still abroad at that point? And kind of how did it play out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was lucky in that the friend I was spoken to has always suffered with like very extreme bouts of mental health, I guess. So very kind of manic fluctuations. So she was also able to support me massively. And I think most of my friends from school have had mental health experiences. So I always felt supported in that way. But again, that you're quite right, that separation by country meant that they weren't so close to me. And I, I did receive psychiatric support in Italy. I had a psychiatrist for like quite a long period of time. And I was put on like quite heavy medication. So the very extreme effects were counteracted. That whole experience of kind of like going through a psychiatric evaluation in a country you don't recognise also in a racist country, it's like hella difficult. Like I remember loads of the questions about anger and about violence. I was like, I'm not going to say that I'm angry or that I have violent tendencies because I know how that would be construed by white mental health professionals who are Italian in front of me. So I don't know, it's a bit of a trip in that sense. But I think a lot of the support strangely kind of just came from myself because it just had to. But I think I've always had the benefit of having a friend who has been through similar experience or been through the same experience and using their wisdom and their methods as well as those that I had. And that you also just piqued my interest with the race comment, I guess. Like, am I right in assuming that perhaps race played into, you know, some of your feelings of isolation while you were traveling at all? Or was it something that was completely separate from how you were navigating those other countries? I mean, I think that's a really good point. I think it was a kind of like smorgasbord of different things, I guess. It's interesting because actually I've never considered that, which is really bizarre of me because I would think I would have been very aware of that at the time, but it's just something I didn't plot. But I think maybe it's because there are a lot of other random kind of traumas. Like before I went to Italy, I was in like a very, very toxic friendship situation, which was almost like an abusive relationship. That's the only way I can kind of describe it. So that had been quite a trauma. And where I'd lived in France, there were just like crazy amounts of like sexual assault and sexual harassment. So I kind of just became very used to being sexually harassed daily, which was a bit weird. So I think it was kind of all those traumas. But also, now you mention it, nearly everybody I was with, nobody was mixed race, nobody was black. I think I was speaking to my friend who's of South Asian heritage, who was in another place in France. And we did at one point talk about both of us suffering mental health traumas on the year abroad and also both of us feeling like there wasn't anyone really like us on our year abroad. So I think there was that in a way. Yeah, that probably did play a part. And also just like Italy is just a difficult country generally. So <laughs> yeah. I have one friend who is 
mixed race, black and Italian. And she had a real reckoning last summer after the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of her upbringing there. I think it was tough. So like, I can imagine sort of being a visitor as well would definitely fall into that. There was one thing that you said that is kind of separate slightly to your extract, but it's interesting because I don't think we've ever had anyone talk about it on, on Growing Up With Garden before, which is just about toxic friendships. And I think it's something that isn't spoken about enough and how those friendships can be just as heartbreaking and just as damaging to one's psyche as a relationship and if only if you feel comfortable obviously but I'd love to know how you've started to reconfigure your thoughts around friendship sort of in the aftermath of getting out of that particular toxic spiral like it was hard I mean it was hard she had many issues of her own and also I guess this is the same thing that you might apply to a toxic family member or a toxic partner is that it's very easy to understand that they might be encountering some traumas or some difficult times and so their behavior is warranted but I think what's important to remember is in any kind of toxic situation it usually worsens in a time of codependency and we had gone to the same university we had done the same course like the exact same languages and then we'd gone to France together and lived together. We'd never lived together before. So it became a very kind of codependent relationship in which it was like, okay, well, if we're going to the supermarket, we're going to go together. If we're going to a night out, we're going to go out together and come back together. It was very like, just like almost like a partnership. And again, because of the kind of place we were living in where sexual harassment and assault was rife, it wasn't just as simple as being like, it's 9pm, I'm going to head down to the newsagent. Like, you just couldn't do that. So it became like a very kind of codependent relationship very quickly and I guess it sounds really silly when you are assessing it at the time, but it's only when you kind of come out of it in hindsight that you're like, this behaviour really just isn't nice. I just remember it was just like a lot of the food I was cooking would just kind of be like, oh, you're not going to eat that, are you? Or like, oh, that's really fatty. That's really like full of cheese or whatever. I'd just be like anything I would eat would be kind of like critiqued. And then anything I was wearing wasn't right. And then everything I was speaking wasn't right. And I just kind of like became like a shell of myself because I was like, well, I can't be myself because there's a problem with every single self that I'm presenting. And so I think now I notice certain things with friends and I just kind of nip it in the bud really quickly. And even with my parents, like my parents are very chill people. But if I find myself starting to kind of be like over-policed in a way where I'm like, you are not respecting me right now, you're not respecting my boundaries and you're not respecting how I choose to present myself, then I kind of vocalise that. And it's not in a kind of attacking way, it's just in a, can we sit down with why you're critiquing me right now and how this is making me feel? Like I try and make it a very open dialogue so that it doesn't end up kind of becoming that pattern where you become really quiet and as a result that person kind of becomes more loud. And, and so even though it's like a toxic, in a way abusive friendship, they're kind of pushing more and more because they're not getting anything back in return. I think that's the way I'm kind of approaching it now. I'm glad that people are talking about toxic friendships more because I think they're a lot harder, I guess, to pull away from because so much of, I guess, of your friendships are like not just you and that person, they're like as a part of a bigger friend ecosystem. So it's quite hard to break away in that respect. But I just think it's knowing your boundaries and knowing where behaviour seeps from kind of like advice or just your friend being a friend into like abusive and disrespectful. I think that's such an interesting point you raise about, I guess, just like critique. I feel like there's just such a fine line between critique and verbal violence in a way. But I feel like, especially in friendships, like there's a notion that closeness is synonymous with just like brutal honesty. And like to be close to someone, to love someone and to be like so inseparable is just to be able to say anything at any time. And I think that's such an important point to raise, even with parents, even with people that you love, even with people that you're completely comfortable with, you can still assert boundaries and there are still going to be lines that shouldn't be crossed. 
So I totally hear that. Yeah, it's totally right. You even see it in like small, like seemingly like um, unimportant things like on TikTok videos. And it's like my BFF and like the BFFs are like doing something like incredibly mean to each other or like saying something. And you're yeah. like, is that what? Is that? I don't want to be a if that's what it's about. Like, yeah, I've decided I don't do BFS. I've got loads of lovely friends, but I don't need someone who's like my everything in that way because it can just, not that every friendship turns toxic, but you know. I remember when I was in primary school, I was that person. People would be like, who's your best friend? I was like, best <laughs> friends are stupid. Like, I just don't believe in best friends. I've always been like, to me, I think personally, I'm a commitment phobe. So even that's like terrifying to me. But yeah, there's definitely something in like, when you allow people into that inner space, it's like, there are some blurred lines that get crossed there. Okay, oh, well, I've got a question for you, which is what advice do you think you'd give to your younger self, you know, who was five years ago sort of in this really tricky period of time if you could what would you sort of go back to her and say it's the same advice I give myself now just stop trying to be light and stop trying to please everyone for as long as I can remember I have like an intense need to be liked and to not upset anybody like even now if I'm like walking down the street and someone doesn't smile back at me it will break me for a day and I'm like what is wrong with you <laughs> like you're 26 grow up but yeah I just remember at the time I was just so eager to be liked and to just not like upset the boat, not to like say anything that might upset somebody, not to pull somebody up, which is really strange because I've always felt I'm able to do that to strangers or I'm always able to do it to people I don't have an emotional attachment to. I could very yeah. much just like speak my mind. It's something I find harder with those who are close to me. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I just tell myself like, stand up for yourself, like, you're worthy, you can speak back to people without it appearing, like, rude or that you're starting a fight. And also, yeah, just, like, like you can be the nicest person, you can do everything that somebody wants you to do, and, like, they can still hate your guts, like, you just don't have the ownership over their, like, emotional response to you. So, yeah, I think I would just tell myself, like, just don't worry, it's fine if people hate you, you will be okay. When you're in that moment of, like, oh, shit, this person might not like me, it's really hard to pull yourself out of it. So I think that's a, a great bit of advice for your younger self and for me as well. <laughs> and for me, too. Let's all take it on. <laughs> but the final question we have for you today is, what do you think your younger self would think about where you are now all these years later? As somebody who, like, was obsessed with books, I remember my mum would take me to book festivals and I would fangirl the hell out. I remember meeting John Agard and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I was like, mum, mum, mum. Like, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. And I was like shaking. I remember meeting Mallory Blackman and I was like, I'm going to pass oh. out. So just the fact that my yes. name is like on a book gasses me up. Like, I know that sounds really sad, but I'm just like, young me wouldn't have cared about anything else I do in my life as long as my name is in a book. She's like, it's all good. Like, so, yeah, I think I'd just be happy in that respect. And just like, I don't know, I think I've always been like strong-willed and strong-minded in terms of like what I see as like right or wrong. So I don't know, I think young women would just be like, okay, cool, you do things like with your mission, you've not like sold yourself out. And I don't think, I hopefully will never ever sell myself out. But I think with that, my young self would be like, okay, cool, I respect you. So yeah, I don't know, I think young women would be happy with me. Like, I think I had a lot of dreams about, like, having a house and having kids and stuff. So <laughs> maybe young me would be like, where are those at? But, you know. She didn't know about the housing she crisis. Didn't. She it's didn't. She okay. didn't know about that recession okay. in 2008. She, she like, didn't know she about She just it. didn't. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been awesome. That's all right. Oh, it's been so nice to chat. Really, really, really lovely. And, um, yeah, loads that we've both taken from that, I reckon. So thank you. I'm glad. Thank you for having me as well. 
So Natty, I really, really enjoyed that chat with me, Ray. I think that both you and I were doing the heavy nods. <laughs> yes. The silent the nods of approval. The silent nods. What struck me in her conversation was that it's not that she, you know, she went on this journey with her mental health and now she's suddenly solved. It's like that constant process. But interesting to hear the reflections that she has got, especially on those toxic friendships that she's kind of moved away from and like the ways in which she tries to reframe some of the issues faced and also just great to hear about sensitivity reading I think oh my we're gosh, both really fascinated was, <laughs> we were literally like hmm so interesting <laughs> yeah I just think it's immense emotional labor I feel so secure in knowing that people like her do have a place within the public industry and hopefully more and more will continue to flock and succeed there. So I find her really inspirational in terms of precision and focus in her mission. And she makes me want to be more assertive. Yeah, I love that. What did you say? You said that she had a good philosophy. She lives by a very specific philosophy and she stands by it. She's very consistent and like, I think it's just a very interesting approach and a very like radical approach to discourse, activism, literature, everything she does. So yeah, so glad we got to chat to her. This has been an II Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdemzine for the latest independent journalism or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up as People of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up with Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.